Father God, we thank you, God, again for this time. We pray, God, that you would be with us as we look into your word. Show us what you would have us to know about you, God. We pray, God, uh, for the request that went up today, God. We thank you for how you show yourself powerful time and time again, God. So we thank you for that. We pray, God, today that you will show us what you have us to know about ourselves and you, and that we'll apply our lives to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we're in, um, still on our series on salvation, and we are at the, I don't want to say the most, well, I guess I can say, this is probably the study of justification. Um, the study of justification is probably the staple point of this entire scripture. The, the turning point, dare I say, the most important section of scripture, because it talks about how we as humans, as mortals, can be right with God. So it's the central point of the scriptures. It's what the, all the scripture talks about and what it all points to here with this justification. Um, and so looking at our ordo salutis or our, our, our order of salvation, justification falls right in the middle there with the atonement, with the calling, with redemption. It's all right there. And it's an event that happens, you know, temporally or time wise. You could try to say one follows the other. But it all happens at the same time uh, 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 as far as that, that middle part of the, of the order of salvation. And so we're going to spend some time. This could be about 49 different messages. So I'm um, taking the words from my wife to make sure I don't try to do everything at once. So I'm going to take my time. <laughs> and um, we're going to go through so we can give justice to this portion of Scripture. Um, it starts off, justification starts off understanding where we are. For instance, we look at the fact of who God is. God is righteous, God is holy, and God is just. And these are, as we talked before, attributes of God. This is God's character. This is who he is. And, and these attributes, his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice, they are unchangeable. I mean, they can't change. Uh, his righteousness is uh, uh, unchallengeable. Challengeable, challengeable. Thank you. Can I be challenged? His righteousness, his holiness, and his justice, uh, and they're part of his character. And because of his righteousness, and we, we spent time talking about that, so I won't get into many details. But because of God's righteousness, there are demands that must be met. His righteousness leads us to demands that must be met, and those demands are basically that we are to be righteous. We are to be perfect. In Matthew. Uh, chapter 5, verse 8. It's going to be a lot of scriptures today. I, I really wish we had our projector working there, but God knows what's going on. So we're going to be turning a lot of scriptures today. <laughs> Matthew 5, 48. Because of God's righteousness, it leads to his demands that must be met. And those are the demands that we should be righteous. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, of course, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking to a mixture of Pharisees and common folk. And he's pretty much explaining them. Earlier he said, in order to be, your righteousness must be more than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And so he's talking about righteousness. And he gets all the way down to verse 48. And he says, Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so our righteousness 
our perfection is demanded upon us because of who God is. And so that's what it is. His demand is that we be perfect, that we be righteous. So how are we doing with that? Not too well. If you turn with me to, again, my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Romans. What Paul does is, I love the book of Romans for many things, but one of the reasons is it sets up kind of a courtroom scenario. If you can think about a courtroom, I don't know how many of you watch courtroom TV shows. Uh, Matlock? No, that's too old. That's old school. <laughs> you remember that? Uh, I think my daddy used to watch Perry Mason. I'm going to say Perry Como, but Perry Mason. Yeah, now we have things like CSI and Law and Order and Blue Bloods, Criminal. This is a lot of them out there. But you got the courtroom scene. We have the judge. The judge has the gavel. You have the accused sitting beside their lawyer who represents the accused, the defendant, and the defense. And then you have the opposite of the defendant and the defense, either the, 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 the whoever's bringing the charge against them, their lawyer. And you have a jury who sits and listens to the cases on both sides, and a verdict is delivered. What Romans does is Paul sets up uh, uh, this courtroom scenario, and he's explaining man on trial. And so God's righteousness says that his demands must be met, and his demand is that we be righteous. We be perfect, according to Jesus in Matthew 5.48. And so what Paul does in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is he lays out the plan of how we are not <laughs> in any way perfect. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he starts talking about the heathen or the pagan or the person who doesn't, quote unquote, know God or believe in God. In uh, Romans 1.18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident with them, for God made it evident with them. You skip down to 24, but because of that, the wrath of God. Therefore, 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and impurity. If you skip down to 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. If you look down to verse 28, it says, and just as they did not fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then he went on to say, and proper again has the idea of right or righteous. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So Paul standing up against man's case in the courtroom of God says that the pagan man or the heathen man is under the wrath of God and their verdict has been declared to be guilty. In chapter 2, he turns to the moral man or the moral woman or the good man or the good woman. And I like how he starts off chapter 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who pass judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same thing. So he starts off saying, now don't you think, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, or Miss Goody Two-Shoes, that you're in the clear. So he spends chapter one talking about the heathen and the pagan, that they're under God's wrath. And then in chapter two, he goes to the morally good person. And he starts saying that you have no excuse. Verse two. And we know that the judgment of God rightly, rightly falls upon those who practice such things. 
But do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, you do the same yourself, that you escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Watch this. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So not only is the pagan heathen who's out there doing all these ungodly things, not only have they been declared guilty in the court of law, God's court, but also the morally good person. You got the law. I go to church. Why do this and I do that? No. And the verdict has been delivered. You also are guilty. And then in chapter three, Paul sums up both the pagan or the heathen and the morally good person or the person that's trying their best to do us right. He sums it all up and lets us know that all the world has been indeed declared guilty. In Romans chapter three, verse nine. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. They have not, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul says you, the entire world, you are been declared, have been declared guilty. So we have pagan man is guilty. We have the morally good, righteous, good person is guilty. We have the whole world has been declared guilty. So God's righteousness says that we are to be perfect, holy, righteous. Paul lays it out that all of us are, have been declared guilty. Therefore, there's condemnation for all. There's no need to wait for a court hearing. There's no need to say, well, you know, I, I really tried some good things. No, we all have been declared guilty. And because of our guilt, because of our sins, the condemnation and the wrath of God is upon us. Which brings us to what's been called the greatest question of all times. And you can find it in Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 9. Book of Job, the question was asked. Job chapter 9, verse 2. If God is righteous, or since God is righteous, and since his righteousness demands that we also be perfect or right, Job chapter 9, verse 2, a question is asked. Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? How can man get right before God? How can man be right before God? How can woman be right before God? How does humanity become right before God? The verdict has been already cast. It's already been delivered that we are guilty. We don't match up to God's righteousness. So Job asked, how then can man be made right before God? And I think that that's, and, and, and looking at, I was studying uh, Ray Pritchard, he's an old preacher. Uh, he, he, he started talking about this and, and talking about how throughout the world, whenever you look at religions, that's what people are trying to do. 
They're trying to get right before God. And they're trying to think, how did it get right before God? And so some people say, you know what? I'm going to have to sacrifice my children. So you go to those countries where they sacrifice their children to try to appease the gods or to make the gods happy with them. Uh, you got people who cut themselves with knives in some countries. You know, cut myself with knives to go through that pain to show uh, uh, the gods that I can win their approval. That, see, I'm going through this pain for you. Uh, you got sensations of people who, uh, uh, different religions, they do Strange things like lie on a bed of nails or walk across hot coals of fire because they want to show the gods. See, gods, look what I'm doing. Ho- hopefully this is good enough to be right with. You got the uh, Muslims, people who pray to Mecca. They, they pray to the East five times a day and they follow Ramadan and they follow these rules and religions. And they try to do this because they think that they can appease Allah or make Allah happy by doing these things. You got countries like in Haiti and other countries who do voodoo. They cut up chickens and, and use chicken blood or, or get, light candles and blow smoke in their kids' faces or, or, or light candles around the house thinking I can appease the God of this or the uh, priest of this or the apostle of this, you know, if I can make them happy by doing these things. Why? Because man, since the beginning of time, has been trying to say, how do I appease the God? How do I get right with God? Even in our society, there are people saying, well, I'm going to do the golden rule. Do unto others as we do unto you. Well, you know, I'm just trying to do my best. You know, I try to be nice to everybody. I, I you know, I donate to some charities. I, 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 I treat people like I want to be treated. You know, I'm generally nice. All these things that we've tried to do in different countries, in our countries, all under that guise of trying to figure out how do I be right with God. And the sad thing about it is that each and every one of our attempts, everything that we do to try to be right with God falls drastically short. In Micah chapter 6, so we got Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Chapter 6, the prophet is, is talking, and he, he's talking about getting right with God, and what are those things that we need to do to get right with God? And it's interesting because, you know, there were sacrifices during that time, and, and some people are thinking, well, these sacrifices, what's doing it? Because I'm sacrificing these animals. This is going to help me get right with God. This is going to meet those demands of righteousness, of perfection. And Micah sadly lets them know in Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? How about ten thousands of rivers of oils. Should I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, for the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Micah says, so, so do I offer these sacrifices? How about one? How about two? How about thousands of sacrifices? Maybe I killed a thousand lambs. How about ten thousands? Would that be enough to appease God? Would that be enough to make me right with God? In verse 8 he says, he has told you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, right? to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Basically what Michael's saying, all those sacrifices, all those things that you try to do come short, fall short. They mean absolutely nothing with you being right with God. The verdict is still guilty. So basically we are doomed. The wrath of God is on us. God has turned us over. Nothing we can do. The sacrifices mean absolutely nothing. There's nothing we can do. We are doomed. Paints kind of a bleak picture when you read chapters 1, 2, 3, uh, and the first part of 3 in Romans. But then there's what's been 
called the greatest two words in the Bible. In Romans chapter 3, I'll read 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now. If you was in one of those churches, I say, everybody turn, turn to your neighbor and say, but now. But, but we ain't <laughs> But now. All the wrath and all the guilty verdict and all the heathens and the morally good in the world. But now, apart from the law, watch it. Righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his, again, righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Though we are all condemned, though we are all under wrath, though the verdict has been delivered to us, guilty, guilty, guilty on all counts. How do we be right with God? God has made a way in the but now. Paul said that the righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God, the righteous, the word there, righteous, mean right or proper. It has that deal would be to, uh, to agree with what God requires. So think about it. It's totally opposite of what we've been doing. Rightness of character before God and rightness of actions pretty much means to be in a right relationship with God. The only thing that God accepts. It's interesting that word there has the idea. Righteousness has the idea of you have a society and a society has some type of expected behavior or expected obedience. For instance, in our society, I can't just kick in the door of Ray's house, walk in, take his 70-inch TV from his house, put it in my car, and drive home. I can't do that. Society frowns upon that. There are some laws that society has set against me stealing from other people's homes. And because of that, there is a conformity or an obedience or an expected behavior in society. Society expects for me to not bust open people's houses and steal things. And that's pretty much the core of what righteousness means. Righteousness means that there is a certain standard that you are expected to follow. And so when he talks about the righteousness of God, who sets that standard? God. So the righteousness of God is a standard that God has set saying that we should follow. Paul says, but now, in our own, Michael, we couldn't, all, no matter how many sacrifices we did, no matter what we did, we could not be right with God. We were condemned. The verdict was guilty. But God, in Romans chapter 2, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, 21, but God, apart from the law, has sent this righteousness. So that quality, that attribute that God has, he sent to us. So what do we know about this righteousness? Well, first thing we know in verse 21, it says this is the righteousness apart from the law. 
So what that basically means that when Paul says laws, he uses it in different terms. Sometimes it could be the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it could mean the actual ceremonial law. Sometimes it could talk about just legalism. Sometimes it's the right of the things that we do to try to obey the law. I believe here what Paul is saying that it's righteousness apart from the law. So it's separate from any man-made human effort. He's going to reiterate that. It's apart from our own strength. And so this rightness this conformity, obedience to God's standard that God has sent to us has nothing to do with my own effort and my own strength. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Ephesians 3, 8, Paul says, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 8. This is one of our favorite books as a group here. And it's a familiar verse. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the results of works, so that no one may boast. Second Timothy chapter one. Um, yeah, Second Timothy chapter one. In Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine, Paul says, who has saved us, talking about God, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted, in, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So again, not according to our works, not according to our strength, but it's according to our faith. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this righteousness that has been revealed is apart from our own strength. It has nothing to do with our own effort, but it is totally received through faith. And Paul reiterates that in verse 27 of the same chapter, Romans 3. 27 says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. I mean, I can't brag about it. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So the first thing we know about this righteousness that has been revealed, the righteousness showed up that it is apart from the law, meaning it totally has nothing to do with my human effort, has nothing to do with my own strength, but it's received only through faith. And we talked about what faith was. Faith was trusting in God. Faith is the only attitude that can lead to salvation because faith is not an action. I can't do faith. It's an attitude. I have faith. That means I trust. That means I trust in the Lord. And only can I receive this righteousness, the Bible said, is through faith or through me trusting in Jesus. What else do we know about this righteousness? Well, we know in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And we know that this righteousness is of God. If it's of God, that means it's not of Olu. It's not of man. And so this righteousness or this obedience to a standard, this right living, we know that it is of God and is not of man. Because the Bible tells us about man's righteousness. In Isaiah, turn with me in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And you probably already know the verse. Sixty four six, yes. In Isaiah... Chapter 64, verse 6, the prophet talks to us about our righteousness, and there's a distinction between our righteousness, Olu righteousness, Jaden's righteousness, and God's righteousness. 
In Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness or all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment or filthy rag. The, the, the original word there has to do with a minstrel rag. That's how God looks at our righteousness. That's how God looks at what we do or what I'm trying to do. And so we have man's righteousness, which is a filthy rag. But in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness that appears apart from the law is God's righteousness. So what do we know about this righteousness from God? Well, while you're there in Isaiah, turn back a couple of chapters to 45. What do we know about this righteousness of God? Well, in Isaiah 45, verse 8, the righteousness of God has some qualities. We know the righteousness of man is filthy rags, so that means absolutely nothing. But this righteousness that shows up, that appears, that has been manifested, has certain qualities. Verse Isaiah 45, 8 says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And so this righteousness that showed up has been created by God. God is the author of this righteousness. What else do we know about this righteousness? Let's turn to the next book over from Isaiah. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 23. In Jeremiah 23, first we know that the righteousness is Apart from the law. Second, we know the righteousness is of God. It's not man's righteousness. Third, we know that this righteousness is created by God. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, we learn something else about this righteousness. We're going to start at verse 5. Jeremiah 23, 5. The Lord is talking here. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a Watch the word righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Matthew, God said, Jesus said that our demand is to be perfect. Paul says that we can't meet that demand, so God sent us his righteousness. And it's interesting how even in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, the prophets talked about, I will send a branch. He was called, one of Jesus' name was the righteous branch. I'm going to send a branch, and the branch will be righteous, and it will act righteous and do righteousness. And his name shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So Christ is our righteousness. In Daniel... And Psalms, Daniel and David talks about how God's righteousness is everlasting and everlasting. The other thing about this righteousness, Jesus, who showed up, was that, uh, and, and the theologians use the term active obedience and passive obedience. Uh, active obedience has the idea how Christ lived his life. He lived a sinless perfection. He lived out what righteousness was. He showed us that we could be right. In 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll read these briefly. First Peter chapter two, verse 22. Um, the apostle says, talking about Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. So we know that Jesus did no sin. In Hebrews 4.15, it talks about the high priest. And the high priest in Hebrews 4.15, the scripture says, um, 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so this righteousness of God lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life. And the passive part has to do with obedience. Christ submitted himself to the cross. And so his life was an active obedience. I mean, he lived out perfection. He lived without sin. He lived out righteousness. He showed us, hey, this can be done. This is how it's done, the righteousness. And he also obeyed Christ, obeyed God in going to the cross. And so we have this righteousness back in Romans chapter 3. The verdict has been declared that we are guilty, but now a right, the righteousness of God has been manifested and witnessed by the law of the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness is available to all who believe. And so to receive this righteousness from God, we have to believe. We have to have faith. We have to trust in God. That is how we receive it. For I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So there's our word, justified, being justified. So what does this mean? What does justification mean? Well, it's interesting that the word justification has the same root word as righteousness, if you look at it in the original language. And so we talk about the righteousness of God as revealed. Justification has the idea of uh, uh, to righteous someone. If, if you look literally and translate, that's what it means, to righteous someone. And, and, and the interesting thing is that uh, uh, um, to righteous someone, someone can't be made righteous. In order to be righteous, there's a lifestyle you have to live. So to say to righteous someone, that has the idea, when you look at the originality of the word, it has a judicial term to it. They actually call it a, a forensic word. I mean, it has something to do with uh, in a jury, in a house, a courtroom, your lawyers, in the court, and the judge. The idea is justification means it's a legal word. It's a legal declaration in which a sinner is declared righteous. So it's a declaration. Justification in standing, not in nature. So justification is not I am Olu is now righteous. That means I am perfectly sinless. Bing, just like that. No, justification is a declaration. God has declared or made a statement that you are legally have been declared righteous. So uh, uh, um, it's the opposite of condemnation. So condemnation is a declaration. This is my gavel. That's what it's called, right? The hammer, the gavel. I'm the judge. I have the gavel. Guilty. Been declared guilty. That's condemnation. The opposite of that is justification. Justification is declared righteous. I've been declared righteous. So it's a legal declaration. So what do you mean declare? Uh, officially, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Legally, lawfully, I am now righteous. So these judicial declarations, to use a fancy words, they only change the status, not the character. Okay? Justification is the declaration of your status. Your status is now righteous. That doesn't mean that you, the inside you, are righteous. It means your status is righteous. For instance, uh, on March 6, 1999, I stood in a church in D.C., and the door opened, and Melissa walked down the aisle, and we stood in front of a preacher, 
And the preacher, we said some things, we said some vows. In the end, the preacher said, now by the power invested upon me by the District of Columbia, I now declare you husband and wife. So after that declaration, our status was changed. Before that statement, we were engaged. After that statement, our status changed to married. Now, did that statement change anything inside with Olu? No. Did it change anything inside with Melissa? Was her character changed? No. Were her insides changed? No. It was just the status. My status was now changed to married. Okay? Uh, another example, uh, you see, like we talked about the courtroom scenario. In the courtroom, the jury is listening to the case from the defendant, to the case from the people who are trying to get them, uh, 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 com uh, who committed the crime. And in the end, the jury listens to the whole case. They go in the back room. They come out and it says, uh, does the jury have a verdict? And the jury stands up. We, the jury, have found the defendant. And then they make a statement, a declaration. Guilty. Okay, so now the accused, their status now changed from this guy was accused of doing something to this guy is now guilty of doing something. And then there's consequences. Or... The jury has a, a fine. We find we the jury find the defendant not guilty. Boom. Then the person who was once the accused, their status is now changed to not guilty and they're free to go. And so these judicial declarations just change the status. And so why I'm pointing that out is that when Jesus said, once you believe, if you have faith, you are justified, meaning there is a legal change of your status from guilty, Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, to now righteous. From guilty to not guilty and fully righteous. Justification means that my sin debt is paid and the divine righteous character is charged to my spiritual account. And we accept it for God, before God, as if we've never sinned. That's what this righteousness does. It's a declaration. I've been declared righteous. So think about it. We're in the courtroom of God. Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is written, is read. The jury is listening to it. And so, oh, it's condemned. They're guilty. But then we get to Romans chapter 21 when it says, but now a righteousness apart from the law has appeared. And so those of us who was doomed, we were condemned. We were, the wrath of God was on us. We were on our way to a godless, Christless hell. But now, the righteousness of God, not only has it appeared, but it has been made available to us, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so that righteousness of God, I can receive it through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And how we receive that righteousness is what this whole thing about justification is about. So we know, first of all, that it's through faith. We saw that here. But now righteousness, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1, therefore, Paul said, being justified by faith. We already saw it was apart from the law. We already saw it was apart from the work. So it's nothing I can do to get this declaration of righteousness. Because it's apart from the law. It's apart from works. I received this declaration of righteous by having faith, by trusting in the work of what Christ did on Calvary. We also know that it is by grace. And grace means that we don't deserve it. 
The theological term is unmerited. We've done nothing to merit it. We've done nothing to deserve it. In Romans chapter three, verse 24, it says being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which was in Christ Jesus. We're justified as a gift. It's not a payment. It's a gift. And we know that the justification was by the blood of Christ. Romans chapter five, verse nine says that much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This declaration of righteous. God has taken his gavel. You've been declared righteous. Once I trust. Once I believe. Once I have faith. And what Jesus Christ did on his work on Calvary. So it's by faith, it's by his grace, and it's by his blood. I am justified. And there's a lot of scriptures on justification. Isaiah 61, 10, the prophet says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Now you have to think how the contrast in that. We read in, in, in Romans how that the wrath of God is upon us. Our throat is an open sepulcher. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. But now, a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Romans 8.10 says, if, you, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, verse 7 through 9. What was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. This righteousness comes through Christ, faith in Christ. We've been clothed in righteousness thanks to the work that Christ did for us. So now this righteousness has been, and the term there that uh, uh, you find in the scriptures, it's been charged to our account. The King James translated imputed. And we talked about how righteousness is imputed, or how righteousness is charged to our account. But the idea is, if, if you look at um, chapter 4, verse 1, Romans 4, 1. What should we say then that Abraham, our forefather, uh, uh, what should we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not that one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But that the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So think about Paola. Paola just got a new job. She's working at Universal now. Let's say Paola makes $100 an hour. Yeah. Let's just say she makes $100 an hour. And she works for 10 hours that day. Okay, so $100 an hour, she works for 10 hours that day, she walks in, and some crazy way, the way Universal does is they pay you daily, every day you go get your check. And so at the end of the day, she worked 100 hours, uh, 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 10 hours, $100 an hour, she walks in and says, uh, yeah, uh, I'm here for my check, 
and the boss says, you know what, Paula, <laughs> got something for you, girl. This is exciting. I'm excited to give this for you. Listen, you've done a great job, and woo, this is something special. Here you go. Now, what is Paola going to think? She got a bonus. She got more money. She's excited. $100 an hour. She worked 10 hours. How much should that be? $1,000. She opened it up, and her check says $1,000. But wait a minute. That was owed to me. That, I work for this. This isn't a gift. This isn't anything special. That was what I worked for. The word that was used here in Romans chapter 4, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, Paola, her wages is not credited as a favor, but as what was due. That wasn't a favor. That was what was due her. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so this thing about justification, the Bible says that this faith, this divine righteousness has been credited to your account or has been charged to your account. And it's not because you work for it, because that's not what the word means. The word credited or charged or imputed has the idea of this is something that you didn't work for. This is a bonus. This is just because. And it's been charged to your account. So you think about it. Anybody got a debit card? And you go to the ATM and you check your status or your balance. And says one day, you know how much you got. I got about maybe, I don't know, who knows, 200 some bucks in my account. Who knows what's going on. I go there and I run my ATM card and I check my status and it says $10 million. Hallelujah. I'm going to claim that first of all. Let's start with that. <laughs> but secondly, I know that that amount of money was credited to my account. I didn't work for it. Not something happened. It was just credited to my account. What the scripture says is the word here for imputed or credited or charged is that righteousness from somewhere else, from someone else, was credited to my spiritual account. And so when God looks at Olu's spiritual account, he sees, oh, righteousness. Not because I worked for it, because it was imputed, because it was accredited, because it was charged to my account. It has an idea, the word has the idea to calculate or to figure something out. Uh, uh, um, and so because of that, it's the opposite of getting paid. So because of that, this righteousness was credited. Well, how? Well, in chapter 4, Paul talks about it. Abraham believed God and his belief or his faith was credited as righteousness. And that's very, very important because a lot of people think that we become right with God by doing something, by saying something. It's not something we say. It's not something we do that our account is charged with this righteousness. It is our faith. He gives us another example. Verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessings from the man whom God credits or imputes or charge righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So it's a financial word, accounting word that says that the righteousness of God that reveal, that righteousness that's eternal, the righteousness that God is the author of, the righteousness that, God, that Jesus lived out in life, that same righteousness has been charged to your spiritual account if you have faith. And so God takes your faith, that point in time in life where you trust God. You say, you know what, God, 
I'm going to trust in you to get right with God. I'm not going to try to do it on my own. I'm not going to try to do the right thing. I'm not going to try to read the Bible more. I'm going to try to go to church every day. All those things are good and dandy, but none of those things will make me right with you. The only thing that makes me right with God is by me trusting you and your work on Calvary, your atonement, what you did for me. And I'm going to trust. I'm going to give up myself. I'm going to give up my right to figure this out. I'm going to give up my right to do this thing. And I'm going to lay everything at your feet. And so I'm going to trust you for my salvation. I'm going to trust you for my strength. I'm going to trust you for my healing. I'm going to trust you for my comfort. I'm going to trust you for every single thing. When we do that point in life, when we trust God, our faith is taken and credited to our spiritual account as righteousness. Abraham believed God and his act of faith was placed to his account in the value of righteousness. Another way to say it is Abraham believed God and his act of faith was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and his act of faith was computed as so its value and there was placed in his account righteousness. God's righteousness. So the understanding that God justifies sinners by reckoning or imputing or charging righteousness to their account is a legal declaration. And the good thing about it, and I know this is righteousness from God. We're going to stop here. And like I said, this is so much more to get into justification. And over the next couple of weeks, Barry and myself will be going over our justification because I really think that this is the, the crust. I don't even know that's the right word. <laughs> this is the what's the word? Come on, help me, people. Core? I guess that works. This is the core of the entire scriptures. The justification, how man becomes right with God. So uh, uh, today, I'm just going to say that that this rightness with God brings about a life. Now we're going to get a difference between justification and sanctification. It's two different things, but justification is that declaration. And so those of us who put faith in God, God has declared us righteous. And because of that declaration, there's a certain way we're supposed to live. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for uh, this great salvation, God. We thank you for justification, God. We thank you for your declaration, how you made it, God, by just putting our trust and our faith in you. I pray, God, that we will continue to study your word uh, and that we'll apply what we learned today to our lives. We'll apply our lives to what we've learned today, God. And that we will live a life under our declaration. And that we're not guilty anymore, those of us who trusted in you, God. And that you have declared us righteous, God. We pray that we'll move to our next part, God, in our salvation, which is to be sanctified, to actually be righteous. And so to live a life holy, accepted, and pleasing to you because you have already declared us righteous, God. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for the but now, God. We thank you for the righteousness who is the righteous branch, who is Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. We thank you for his sacrificial work uh, on Calvary. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right.